Church, if you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Two weeks ago, the Lord handed us a baton. That baton was handed to us by way of the apostles and those who have run their leg of the race before us. And that baton was the mission. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's our baton. That's our mission. Last week, we were given our lane assignment in this race. And we were told where to run and how to run in obedience to Jesus Christ in one accord with one another in the body of Christ, having a unity of mission, being devoted to prayer, and having an unflappable confidence in God's infallible word and in God's unstoppable purposes. So we've got our baton, we've got our lane assignment, and friend, this morning we get fueled up. This morning we are empowered to be able to run our race. And so let's read Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And this morning we will continue through to verse 21. This is God's word, church. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one, in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, declares God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass 
that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Our God, thank you. Thank you so much for gathering us, for giving us the privilege and honor and opportunity to worship you through song, to worship you by hearing and praying for what you're doing on the other side of the globe. And Father, now by worshiping you through attending to your word, by hearing from you. Father, we are so thankful for this book. We are so thankful, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us in this word. We're thankful that you have preserved it throughout the ages such that we can know with confidence that it is your very breath to us. And so we now ask in the name of Christ that you would speak to us from it. Do what you can only do. Speak to our souls from the depths of this word. Drive it deep into our hearts, Father, so that we are not the same having been encountered you on your, in the pages of your word. Speak to us, Father, we pray, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we're at Acts 2. We're at Pentecost. And Luke is recounting for us the coming of the Holy Spirit. And there are three sections to this passage. First, in the first four verses, we see a description of the coming of the Spirit. Then in verses 5 through 13, we see the effect of the coming of the Spirit. And then finally, as he quotes from the prophet Joel, we see an explanation of the coming of the Spirit. So Luke begins in verse 1 here saying, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And so this is 10 days after Jesus ascended to heaven, 50 days after the Passover in the upper room. The word Pentecost means 50th. It refers to the 50th day after Passover. It marked the beginning of one of three main feasts on the Jewish calendar. This is the Feast of Weeks, referring to the seven weeks between Passover and Pentecost. And so Jerusalem at this time would have been filled with people from all over the neighboring regions, just as, it had, just as had been the case during Passover itself. And Luke tells us that, that they were all together in one place. They, referring to the apostles and that group of 120 people as we saw last week, they were all gathered in one place. It may have been the upper room, but it was a, a room nonetheless there in Jerusalem. And remember why they're there. As we said last week, Jesus had told them to go back to Jerusalem and told them to wait until they were clothed with power from on high, referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit that would, that would empower them, to empower them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so they're, they're there and they're waiting obe obediently. And what happens? Verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So Luke is giving a description of what the coming of the Holy Spirit was like. And the first thing that we notice is that his arrival was accompanied by a wind. It was a sound. It was the sound of a, of a mighty rushing wind. The, the word for wind here is nae, with a silent P at the beginning. 
And it shares the same root for another word that means wind, pneuma, that also has a silent P at the beginning. And that word pneuma is the word that later in verse 4 is translated spirit. So this is the holy pneuma, the holy spirit. And so this is the word that's describing the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. And he's described as a, as a mighty, the New American Standard says, violent or forceful rushing wind. And this wind is said to fill the entire house where they were sitting. Now, we don't know exactly what this was like. All we have is Dr. Luke's account of it in this particular verse. But notice here that this is not a wind. It's like a wind. This is a simile. So let's go back to middle school or whenever it was that we learned uh, in, in grammar school, perhaps, about what a simile is. It is when two unlike things are compared to one another so that uh, the one is the description of the one that's being compared to it is more vivid. That description is more vivid. And the comparison in a simile is usually made using the words like or as. And so first, the coming of the Holy Spirit for these early believers was, was like a sound. It was like the sound of a mighty rushing wind that filled the whole house. It sounded like a wind. It wasn't a wind. It was the Holy Spirit, but it sounded like a rushing wind. But then next, it also looked like something. And it looked like tongues of fire descending on them. Now, were they actual tongues of actual fire? No. This is another simile. Technically, the tongue is a metaphor and the fire is a simile. But they are tongues as of fire. And these tongues, divided tongues as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And so just as there is a connection between the wind and the Holy Spirit, so here there is a connection between God and fire. And we see that all throughout the Bible, don't we? In Exodus chapter 3, God shows up to Moses in a burning bush. In the wilderness, the Israelites are led by night by a pillar of fire. The writer of Hebrews tells us that our God is an all-consuming fire. Quoting from Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy 9. All throughout the Bible, the fire is used as a symbol of God's divine presence. So with the sound of the wind and the, the sight of these tongues of fire, Luke is telling us that the promise of the Father has arrived. The Holy Spirit is now among them. But he's not just among them. He's in them, as verse 4 says. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is a fulfillment of what Jesus promised. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. Jesus says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so see what happened. In, in verse 1, or excuse me, in chapter 1, Jesus promises the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2 now, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Now that seems to insinuate that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit are the same thing. But are they? Now allow me to take a little bit of a rabbit trail here to dive into this a little bit more because those are two phrases that come with a lot of misunderstanding and misconception about what they refer to. Are they the same thing, this baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit? It certainly seems to insinuate when in chapter 1 there's the promise from Jesus that you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, and then in chapter 2 they are filled with the Holy Spirit. But are they the same thing? One of the problems that we run into is that later in the book of Acts, we see the apostles being filled with the Holy Spirit over and over again. In chapter 4, this same Peter, along with John, are standing before the Sanhedrin, and they're being questioned before the Sanhedrin. By whose power and whose authority are you preaching the resurrection of Christ? And and we're told in in verse 8 of chapter 4, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and then he goes on to preach another defense of the gospel. Presumably, that Peter is then again filled with the Holy Spirit. Then later in that same chapter, later in chapter 4, after Peter and John are released, they come back to the the believers who are gathered together, and they're, they're... They're praising God and they're celebrating their release from jail. And verse 31 of chapter 4 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And so this whole group, many of whom were probably there in this Pentecost scene here in Acts 2, were filled with the Holy Spirit again and of course the apostle paul we know later will exhort and command the believers in ephesus to be filled with the holy spirit he says in ephesians 5 18 and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the holy spirit that's a command and it's a command to believers who had the holy spirit The Holy Spirit was already indwelling them, and he commanded them, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that imperative verb there, be filled, is in the present tense. And so it's literally be being filled in an ongoing manner. Keep being filled over and over and over again. And so for these earliest disciples, the apostles that are gathered here in Acts 2, along with the group of about 120 disciples, early followers of Jesus, for them, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, where they get the Holy Spirit, and their initial filling of the Holy Spirit are one and the same. But it also appears that they continued to be filled with the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts, as we'll see, and even exhorted subsequent believers to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so for every other believer who was not present in that scene there at at Pentecost, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not the same thing as being filled with the Holy Spirit. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is when the believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. The third person of the Trinity comes to reside in, indwell in the one who repents of their sin 
and places their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope for salvation. Now for the apostles and the group of 120 here in this Pentecost scene, it was something that they had to wait on in Jerusalem, just as Jesus had told them to, and as we learned last week, was a fulfillment of prophecy, that they had to go back to Jerusalem and wait, after he ascended, wait to be clothed with power from on high for the Holy Spirit to come on them. But for the rest of us, this happens at the very moment of conversion. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ and, and we turn from our sin, we are born again, as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3. When the spirit that is, in, that is dead in us, such that we cannot commune with the God of the universe, that, that dead spirit is replaced by a new spirit, and we are given new life, when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, makes us alive in our spirit, we're, we're given new life. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've experienced that. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You have him inside of you. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And parenthetically, our subsequent believer's baptism in immersion by water symbolizes physically on the outside that which the Spirit of God has already done on the inside through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's for every believer. It's instantaneous at the moment of salvation. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But what about being filled with the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? Being filled with the Holy Spirit is both a supernatural empowerment for mission to supernaturally empower us to be able to engage in the mission of being his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And it is the net result of God's sanctifying work in us through the abiding spirit of Christ that's been placed in us. There's two Greek words that the New Testament writers use to refer to this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to bore you with the details of that very interesting word study. If you want it, let me know. I'll, I'll email it to you. But suffice it to say that this filling of the Holy Spirit has a twofold purpose. First of all, it is a supernatural empowering for mission, as we'll see here in Acts 2. And secondly, it has a sanctifying purpose, where we are changed where we begin to look different and we begin to live different and we begin to look like our Savior Jesus because of the outworking of the Spirit that now indwells us. We become filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing. All of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. We are, in that sense, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But not all of us are all of the time filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me try to explain this a little bit better with an illustration. Now, y'all going to have to bear with me because I don't typically use like visual illustrations, and this one really could go awry. But <laughs> I'm going to do my very, very best. All right? All right, so... 
I, I want you to use your imagination. This, this milk, and it, it is dated 825, so we're good. Um, whoever's going to help me with this. All right, so this, this glass of milk represents our lives. But it represents our lives before coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We're unregenerate. We are deserving of judgment because of our sin and rebellion against God. And we look like those who do not know God and do not love God. That's who we are. Now, God, second element here, God intersects our life with the gospel. This is Clover Valley gospel, apparently. God intersects our life with the gospel. And by God's grace, he brings us to faith. And we trust in Jesus Christ as our only hope for rescue from what we deserve. Now we want to be reconciled to God, and we know that the only way is to place our faith in Jesus. And so God leads us to do that. And so here comes the Holy Spirit. Here's Pentecost. Mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire. There it is. <laughs> All right. Now, the Holy Spirit is indwelling us. But has much changed? It looks pretty much the same. Can I, can I have someone um, as a volunteer see if it tastes any different? Anybody want to taste this? Anyone? Nora? Micah? Anybody? All right, Knox, come on up here. Come on up, bud. You don't have to say it. Yeah, put that gum down. All right. All right. Take a sip of that. Just a sip. All right, now stay up here. All right, what does it taste like? It tastes like milk. Yeah. All right. So what do I have to do to make this taste like something other than just Vitamin D, whole milk without anything in it. I got to mix it up. Stay right there. Stay right there. You get the good part too. <laughs> so this is me obeying Jesus. This is me reading my Bible, spending time with God in prayer. This is me learning to trust God and not self. This is me developing relationships within the body of Christ, learning how to encourage one another and be encouraged by my brothers and sisters in Christ. So now, it certainly looks different. Let's see if it tastes different. Does it? Good. That's yours. You can take it home with you. <laughs> so... Thank you, Knox. Thank you, Knox. So, in the same way, in much the same way, every believer in Jesus Christ is indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And at the moment of conversion, we have all of the Holy Spirit we're ever going to get. And we never need more of Him because we've got all of Him. But we don't always look a whole lot different in that moment. And sometimes as we walk through life, we don't look a whole lot different from the world. Because not every believer has stirred it up to where our, 
our, our outside looks different. And we taste different. Our lives are different. And this is something that we should pray for. And this is something that we ought to pursue. Like these early believers, here's the why. Like these early believers, we too have been given an awesome and seemingly impossible mission. To be witnesses of Jerusalem, be witnesses of Jesus in our Jerusalem, our Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. To take the gospel to our community and to the nations. And so we too need, just like these folks, need a supernatural empowerment for this mission. We can't do this without him. We don't know where to go. We don't know what to say. We don't even know who to say it to. We don't know how to put one foot in front of the other. And, and, and much less do we have any hope at all of changing hearts and seeing someone who is dead in their spirit come alive in their spirit. We are absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit of God. We need a supernatural empowering in order to accomplish this mission. And so let's take our cue from this early band of Christ followers. What did they do? How did they wait on the Holy Spirit? Well, they were focused on obeying the words of Jesus. They were building unity. They were in one accord, united in their mission. They were devoted to prayer. They prayed. They pled with God. Bring your spirit. We absolutely need him for this mission. And they had what we called last week that unflappable confidence in God's word and in God's sovereignty. And we need those things to be true of us. If we are going to stir things up along with the work of the indwelling Spirit of Christ and look different and being empowered for mission. If we're not obeying Jesus or if we are not unified in our mission, then friend, we are grieving the Holy Spirit of God and we can't expect Him to fill us for mission. If we're settling for a dry or maybe even a non-existent prayer life. Or if we're demonstrating a lack of trust in God's word by not reading our Bible, then how can we think that the Holy Spirit will fill us in a supernatural way to help us engage in mission? And if we're not trusting in God's sovereignty, then we are in essence telling the Holy Spirit, we don't need you. And the Holy Spirit's just going to use someone else to fulfill his mission. Through our obedience, our unity and mission, our devotion to prayers, our confidence in God's word and in God's sovereignty, the Spirit of God will use us so that we're empowered for mission and transformed to look more like Jesus for his glory. So, end of rabbit trail. Let's get back to the text. We're still in verse 4. What attends to the coming of the Spirit, the sound of the wind, the sight of the tongues of fire. And then we see a third manifestation of the Spirit. 
They were filled with the Holy, all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is the third manifestation of the Spirit that accompanies His arrival. The net effect in this setting of the arrival of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, is that they speak in other tongues. Now these other tongues, as it says here, it's clear from the context that this was not a heavenly language or some kind of ecstatic speech that we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Rather, these are earthly languages. These are languages of actual people groups. Because these people who are gathered in Jerusalem from all these other places that speak all these other languages, they hear them speaking in their own tongue. Look again at verses 5 through 13. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belong to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So the filling of the Holy Spirit in verse 4 had a purpose, and in this setting, the purpose was their empowerment for mission, to speak the mighty works of God, as, as Luke tells us, the truths about God to these folks who were gathered from all over the world and to speak it in a language that they understood. Now, three things that I want us to note about what happens here? First, we see that the aim of this mission is the nations. The aim of this mission that happens here is the nations. And friend, that has always been the aim of God's redeeming work to draw sinners back to himself. From Abraham in the wilderness, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. To Jesus and his great commission, go and make disciples of all nations. And even to the passing of the baton in chapter 1 that we saw a couple of weeks ago. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The aim of God's mission to redeem sinners back to himself through the sacrificial death of his son Jesus at Calvary. The aim of that mission has always, always been the nation's. A people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And church, any mission of ours that doesn't include the nations is a truncated mission, an incomplete and insufficient mission. The aim is the nations. Secondly, every believer was included in this mission. So not only is this mission for all the nations, but it is to be engaged in by all the believers, every Christ follower. It wasn't just the apostles, apostles who were filled with the Holy Spirit. We're told in verse 4 
that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And the tongues of fire did not fall just on the apostles, but on all those who were gathered there in that room. It fell on each and every one of them. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would, at times, in various situations, the Holy Spirit would fill a prophet so that that prophet would speak forth God's words. But now in the New Testament era, the Holy Spirit fills every believer so that every believer would speak forth the words of God. It's for all of us. If you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as your only hope for rescue from deserved judgment, then the Holy Spirit of God is in you right now. And He has been put there for a purpose, to empower you for mission. See, there are no grandstands in this mission. There's no sidelines. Nobody sits on the bench. Nobody sits on the, st- on the sidelines. Everyone is in the game. We all run this race. By God's grace, he has corporately handed us that baton to be as witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And together we run this race for his glory. <clears throat> so every believer and no one is excluded from this mission and from the command to engage in this mission. And then thirdly, we see here that this mission was uh, somewhat of a reversal of what we saw in the Tower of Babel back in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, the people scatter. Why? Because everyone begins speaking languages that they do not understand. Now, the people gather in Jerusalem so that they might hear people speaking in languages that they do understand. In Genesis chapter 11, back there, there was confusion. There's confusion in both of these settings. In Genesis chapter 11, because of their pride in building a tower up to God or thinking that they could build a tower up to God, God confused the people by causing them to speak in different languages. Now, here in Acts 2 at Pentecost, God confuses the people by allowing them to hear these Christ followers who are now speaking in other languages that they do understand, and they're confused by it. Just the mere sight of these Galileans speaking in their own native tongue confuses them. Luke says that they were bewildered, astonished, and perplexed. And it causes them to ask questions. Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us, them speaking in our own languages? And then at the end... What does this mean? And perhaps we should ask the question at this point, are we living the kind of lives that causes a lost world to be confused and perplexed and to ask questions? What's different about them? Why do they live like that? Why is it that they seem to have a, a, a peace about their soul even when there are storms raging all around in life? 
That's what being filled with the Holy Spirit would do, will do when we engage in mission. Now, in response to their bewilderment and their question, what does this mean? Peter now stands and he answers that question. And his answer to the question comes in the form of a sermon. And the sermon starts at verse 14 and it continues through verse 36. We're not going to cover all of the sermon this morning. There's two sections and we're just going to have time to cover the first section. The first section is in verses 14 through 21 where, where Peter explains that this coming of the Holy Spirit is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and marks the beginning of the last days. But then, wait for next week, beginning in verse 22 through 36, Peter then preaches Christ. The first Christ-exalting sermon of the New Testament church. And as a result, the people of Jerusalem are cut to the heart. And 3,000 souls are saved on that day. So first, in verse one, uh, verse 14, Peter, standing with 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, saying, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And by the way, when we see Peter stand at Pentecost and deliver this sermon, both this week and next week. That should put two pictures into our mind. First of all, it should be a picture of God's amazing grace. Because only the grace of God could take a man who just seven weeks prior had denied Jesus three times could now call on that man to stand up on the streets of Jerusalem and preach about God's grace to sinners. It's a picture of God's grace. But it's also a picture of a spirit-filled believer. This person who just seven weeks ago on these very same streets cowered at the accusation that came from a little girl now stands up on these streets where the gospel is opposed, as we will see, violently, and delivers the most courageous and boldest sermon that's ever been preached. So what does he say? What does Peter say? Well, first, in verse 15, he re refutes the accusation that they're drunk. He said, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, which is about nine o'clock in the morning. Then he directs them to the Hebrew scriptures in verse 16, and he quotes from the prophet Joel. And this is an extended quote here directly from Joel chapter 2. Now, the prophet Joel prophesied that the land of Judah was being afflicted at that time by a great drought and famine and a plague of locusts. But, but Joel tells us in that book that those plagues and that famine were at the hand of God, that God was doing that as a judgment on God's people for, for, for leaving their God and following after other gods. And so Joel calls on them, on them to repent of that and to return to the Lord so that the Lord would once again bless them and pour out His Spirit on them. But then Joel, in, in, in the second chapter, Beginning with this passage that's quoted here in Acts chapter 2, 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, Joel looks over the timeline, the distant timeline of the horizon and sees a day in the future when all will be changed. And he directly quotes, beginning in verse 17 and following, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to turned to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Quickly, three things that we see from Peter's quotation here of the prophet Joel in his Pentecost sermon. The first is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is fulfillment of prophecy. It's fulfillment of prophecy. Notice what happens here at Pentecost. The Spirit fills the believers. The believers then prophesy and tell of the mighty works of God to people that are gathered there in Jerusalem. Those lost people in Jerusalem see that, hear that, and they say, what does this mean? And so Peter answers and says, this is fulfillment of what Joel talked about. When Joel talked about a day when he would pour out his Spirit on his people on all flesh and all of his people would prophesy that people of jerusalem that's what's happening that's what you're seeing here right now on the streets of jerusalem it was fulfillment of prophecy secondly pentecost marks the beginning of the last days joel's prophecy as we track it 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 moves from god pouring out his spirit on his people in at pentecost it moves from that to what verse 20 says, the, the day of the Lord, the, the great and magnificent day. And that which verse 20 describes, the sun being turned to darkness and the moon being turned to blood, certainly as we know from our study that we wrapped up a few months ago going through the book of Revelation, finds fulfillment in the eschaton when Jesus returns and brings judgment to the nations of the earth. So we should understand that we are living in the last days even now. The last days were inaugurated when Jesus ascended back to, the he- back to heaven. And that the last days will come to an end when he returns again from heaven. And then the third thing that we learn from his quotation from Joel chapter 2. Is that just as we saw earlier when the Holy Spirit filled every single believer. So here... In these inaugurated last days, every believer shall prophesy. Look at that again in verses 17 and 18. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. By the way, all flesh there means all of God's people. All of his people without exception, men and women, old and young, from every nation. All flesh does not, cannot, will not ever mean the unregenerate. So this is all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So who does that include? Continuing in verse 17. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions. Old men shall dream dreams. Even on male servants and female servants. 
in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And remember that the word prophesy does not always mean telling what the future holds, but it does most predominantly mean speaking forth about God, speaking forth God's words about himself. And and isn't that what was happening here at Pentecost? God's spirit was poured out on all of the believers who were present in that scene. And they began to, as verse 11 says, tell the mighty works of God. They were prophesying, all of them. They were prophesying the mighty works of God. And church, isn't this the mission that, that we've been given? Isn't this the baton that was handed to the apostles in the first chapter and then subsequently handed to the believers in the church throughout the ages and the baton that's now been handed to us to be witnesses of Jesus or we might say to prophesy and foretell about the mighty works of Jesus in our Jerusalem our Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In this passage, what do we see? We see God faithfully keeping his promise to pour out his spirit on all those who are his by faith in order to empower them to fulfill their mission to take the gospel to the nations. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've you've repented of your sins, you've trusted in Jesus as your only hope, you're in this picture as well. The Holy Spirit of God, the same one, is in you. And he's in you for a reason, and that is to empower you for mission. The same power that empowered those early followers of Jesus Christ to take the Gospels to the hostile streets of Jerusalem is the same power that is available to you and I to take the Gospel to the hostile streets of the community in which God has sent us and to the nations. Let us plead with our God for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit so that we don't have man's power to engage in this mission, but we have a supernatural empowering to engage faithfully in this mission. And if there's anything in our life that would keep us from from stirring up that which God has put in us to be empowered for this mission, let us lay it aside. Friend, if there's anything in your life that is grieving the Holy Spirit, any disobedience, any sin, I call on you. Confess that. Repent of that. Not only for your own self, but so that you can be empowered for mission and bring glory to God with your life. If there is in you any spiritual laziness or or lethargy that would cause you not to be filled with the Spirit, then commit this morning to present yourself afresh to God as a willing sacrifice. Commit to practicing the spiritual disciplines by reading your word, reading the scriptures, spending time with God in prayer, spending time developing biblical community in the body of Christ so as to do your part 
and stirring up the Spirit of God that is in you so that you're empowered for this mission. But if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, not if you've been in church a lot, but if you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope, then, friend, the Holy Spirit is not in you. And what is in you is a spirit that is dead, and you can't make it alive. Your only hope for new life is to turn from your sin and your self-rule and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Come to him in faith. And what are we told at the end of that quote from Joel? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I beg of you, as your only hope, call on the name of the Lord. Trust in Christ to rescue you. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful as those who have received the baton from you and have been given the lane assignment that you don't set us out on this race without empowerment, without being fueled up. Father, we're so thankful that you have, in your divine wisdom, indwelled us with your Holy Spirit, God himself, in us. Father, we come before you as a faith family this morning, and we together plead with you that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Oh God, change us. Make us to look more like Jesus Christ so that you are glorified in and through our lives and so that a lost and watching world would look at us and be perplexed and wonder why we hope in the face of hopelessness. Father, we pray for those who may be, be within the sound of my voice this morning perhaps in this very room, young or old, who have never trusted in Christ alone as their only hope. We pray, Father, that you would, at this very moment, perform a miracle. Would you reenact Pentecost? Not in a visual way, but in a more powerful way. Send your Holy Spirit to make that person alive. Give them new life in Christ. Cause them to stop trusting in themselves, to make themselves right before you. Bring them to the end of themselves and show them Christ crucified and resurrected. And give them a faith to trust in Jesus Christ as their only hope. Put your Holy Spirit in them and redeem for yourself, Lord, another worshiper for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.